Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here. Uh, I was enjoying the worship so much I didn't really, wasn't really ready to come here. I am now. Uh, good to see you and uh, to be, wow, it is so good. You know, there's uh, a lot of writing being done right now about what this season of pandemic means in terms of the church. And uh, there's some similarities between what we're going through and what the people of Israel went through in exile. Everything's out of rhythm. Everything, you know, we're, we're not able to agree each other. We're masked. We're on Zoom. Uh, there's still, even though we're so grateful for vaccinations coming, uh, our daughter, who's a school teacher in Colorado, she has been vaccinated, and, and uh, it, it, we're gonna, it's coming to us too, for which we give thanks. All the medical and science people that have done their jobs and, and done it day and night for a year now. But, um, you know, when you think about exile, when you think about what the people of Israel went through in exile, and you look at their history, it was in exile that they learned the most about themselves and about God. That's where the revelation really takes place. Daniel in Babylon, the book of Daniel, you know? And so I don't, I don't think this time should be wasted. I, I think there's something that God's doing something, my life, your life, in the life of the broad, broader body of Christ. Something's going on here that's really important. There's a, they're, they're talking about seismic shifts in the culture. I think there's seismic shift coming in the church too. And I, I suspect it's going to get to the issue of what's really important. And, and what does it mean to really authentically be followers of the Lord Jesus in a post-Christian world? Well, the other thing that uh, this season of the year, of course, is, is Lent. Now, I know that Lent hasn't been, uh, uh, historically, something that uh, the Protestant Church has celebrated, if I can use that word, as much as Catholicism. It's been part of Catholicism for centuries. As a very, very young pastor, I was introduced to a book by Harold John Ockengay. Some of you may know that name. He was pastor of Park Congregational Church in Boston, a Baptist church, huge Baptist church in Boston for three decades, I think it was. Anyway, his book was Protestant Preaching in Lent. And it was transformational for me. And, and the reason it was was because there's seven Sundays between the Ash Wednesday and Easter. And his theory was we should use those seven Sundays to focus on the cross. Not just Good Friday and not just Easter Sunday, but it should be a season. And, of course, he had some fantastic ideas about how that could be accomplished. All that to say that I have been fascinated by Matthew 26 and 27, leading up to 28, of course, which is resurrection chapter in Matthew's gospel, uh, for, for many, many years. And over the next four Sundays, your elders have asked me to uh, be here the next four Sundays, so I put together a series for Lent in Protestantism. And the first one's going to be Gethsemane. Uh, the second one will be the whole issue of why Jesus stayed on the cross. Why didn't he call 10,000 angels? The third one is going to be a contrast between the, uh, the, the sin of Peter and the sin of Judas. Both sinned. 
what's the difference between the two? And the fourth, tentatively, I'm not sure for sure on this one, I'm working on uh, a pilot, um, something called the, the cowardice of pilot. Uh, that's still embryonic, so uh, I'm, I'm not going to guarantee that one at this point. But that's the progress, the, the process that I've been through and the progress that I will take as I go through Matthew 26. Josh has beautifully read the passage already. I did send an outline, and oh, bless your heart, Alex, you found it. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, those of you on Zoom, I don't think you will have access to it, uh, but you'll uh, be able to get it later if you wish. So the outline, Matthew 26, I've called this message Gethsemane, colon, Asleep at the Switch. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do give you thanks for this time. It's been tough. It's so difficult to not be connected to, to not be social, to not be able to do the things that we just took for granted before pandemic. But it's in these times that you speak and you want to speak to us today through your word. So do that. We give you permission and open our hearts fully to your Holy Spirit knowing that we still have so much to learn about you. In Jesus' name, amen. From my earliest days in public school until today, I have been fascinated by words and language. I got through the math and the science classes. I was just happy to have them over with. The English and history classes I loved. I am particularly interested in the meaning of words, phrases, and figures of speech that are unique to the English language. I mentioned our daughter, Catherine, school teacher in Denver, Colorado. She is in a school of 1,800 grades 6, 7s, and 8s. And in that school, she teaches grade 7 English, in that school are 50 language groups. Now, you can imagine what it would be like, and it is quite an assignment. We're so proud of her, what she's accomplished. But it is amazing uh, some of the challenges that she faces uh, teaching English in a school that is so uh, densely populated and also that has so many who are learning English as a second language. Imagine that you are an immigrant attempting to learn English. I've got some words for you this morning. Window pane. P-A-N-E. Sounds the very same as I am in pain. P-A-I-N. But totally different meanings. Window pane, I am in pain. Words that sound the same, totally different meaning. You can do that multiple, many, many times. Or, referring to something done well, we say, he hit it out of the park. Well, it's, it's a baseball image. And if you're not a baseball fan, or if you've come from a country where another sport is, is more important, more dominant, or you just don't have any connection to athletics, you probably don't know that that is a reference to a home run. 
It means that you've done the best you can do playing the game of baseball. You hit it out of the park. Here's the third one. Asleep at the switch. A light switch? No. This figure of speech would be incredibly difficult to teach because I'm guessing that most of us here today don't know the origin of this phrase. I know the meaning of this phrase and its origin because from 1962 to 1964, I lived in the little hamlet of Haley Station, Ontario, when I was seven to nine years of age. Fifty-nine years ago this summer, Donald and Alice Eyre and their five children moved to this little dot on the map located between Renfrew and Cobden in the Ottawa Valley. Dad had been appointed to the pastoral charge of Renfrew and Haley Station. I was seven, my youngest sister was six months old, and there were three more kids in between. Seven, five, four, two, and just an infant. Now this parsonage, I've gone back many, many times to look at this house. This parsonage was right out of the movies, is the only way to put it. It was wedged between old Highway 17 and the main line of the CPR, which went to Sudbury and Winnipeg and then on west. To the east of our house, about 100 feet away, was Highway 17. Now, some of you have driven Highway 17, the new one that goes from Renfrew up to Cobden up to Pembroke. Old Highway 17, before the bypass, went right through the middle of Haley Station, and our house was 100 feet from it. To the west, 75 feet, was the train track. The only thing between our house and the main line of the CPR was my mother's garden. You always knew when the train was coming. About a mile away, the dishes in the cupboard began to rattle. By the time you could see the train, the house was shaking. And in the middle of the night, you were sure the train was going right through the house. Haley Station was a station named after Mr. Haley. There was a railroad yard with several parallel railroad tracks. Now for the origin of a sleep at the switch. Some of you know this already. I can see the railroad man putting a long iron rod into the switch that allowed the great CPR train to continue its way west at what seemed to a young boy to be 60 miles an hour. And that's where a sleep at the switch finds its origin. It refers to the railway man being asleep and failing to switch the tracks for the train to run on the right track. Can you imagine what would have happened if that railway man had been asleep at the switch? I'll tell you, if that train had ever derailed <laughs> in Haley Station, it would have been, it would have, that house would have been gone. There's no other way. It would have been flattened, no doubt about it. A massive derailment uh, 
would probably have resulted in a loss of life. But what I want you to see today is that on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus' three closest friends were asleep at the switch. On the night of Jesus' passion, the term that is given to his mortal agony, Peter, James, and John slept right through the passion of our Lord. They were, to use the figure of speech, asleep at the switch. And I want to ask myself this morning, and I want to ask you this question. Is it possible that I could be asleep at the switch? So there's three movements in this story from Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Sleep session number one is 36 to 41 of Matthew 26. Wonderfully, we've shared the Lord's Supper together, and I think that's again as part of coming out of exile, is being able to do something like that uh, together. So right on the heels of the first celebration of the Lord's Supper, Jesus and his disciples moved from the city of Jerusalem to a garden on the Mount of Olives, just outside the city where Jesus habitually went to pray. Now we know from the text that he left nine of the disciples in one area of the garden. And he handpicked Peter, James, and John, who were probably his three closest friends, to be with him. And then, the Lord Jesus Christ, very God, very God, and very man, a very man, began to pour out his soul to these three friends. Now, this is Jesus speaking. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus moves on a little farther, and he falls with his face to the ground, and he prays, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Here the Son of God pours out his soul to his Father, pleading that the cup be removed, but affirming that God's will be done in his life. Here the salvation of the world is hanging in the balance. Here he is pleading his case before God. And what are his three best friends doing? They're asleep. So he comes back in verse 40 and says to them, Could you men not keep watch with me one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. In other words, even if you cannot pray for me, you need to pray for yourselves because the spirit is willing, the body is weak. Well, that takes us to sleep session number two, verses 42 and 43. Feeling the enormity of his calling, Jesus moves away from the three disciples a second time. Now, I want you to see the progression in this prayer. This is fascinating to me. In the first prayer, Jesus says, 
If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now, the second prayer, verse 42, My Father, if it is not possible. You see the progression there? He's moving. He's, he's coming into that place of acceptance. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. In this second prayer, Jesus does not ask for the cup to be taken away. He affirms his willingness to drink the cup in order for God's will to be done. The cross is now in view. Jesus is coming through this time. God is strengthening him as he accepts his cup. And what are his three prayer warriors doing? They are asleep. This time, the biblical record suggests in verse 43 that Jesus doesn't even wake them up. So a third time, he leaves them and prays the same prayer. Sleep session number three, verses 44 to 46. Victory has been achieved in Jesus' life for the final time. The cross has been seen in Jesus' mind's eye, and he has accepted it. It's done. There's a sense in which the, the whole issue of the cross and the accepting of the cross is, is accomplished in Gethsemane. And the events of the next 24 hours are almost, even though they're not for granted in terms of what Jesus will experience, he has made up his mind and he will go through it, with it. The next day at this time, Jesus' body will have been laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And for the third time, and the final time, Jesus returns to his sleeping disciples. Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Peter, James, and John slept through the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. They did not hear those words of agony as Jesus pled for his life. They did not hear his progressive acceptance of the Father's will for his life. What's more, they were too tired to pray for the Savior as the salvation of the world including theirs, hung in the bounce. You see the contrast? Jesus struggling, praying. Luke chapter 22, verse 44, tells us that Jesus was in such agony that he sweat great drops of blood. There's a medical term for that today, hamadrosis it's called, if I understand it correctly, uh, the, the capillaries break down and the blood seeps through the skin. Jesus is sweating his blood. He's dying before he's actually crucified. Wrestling with the forces of darkness. And his disciples, his three best friends, they're asleep at the switch. And I wonder about my life. And I wonder about your life. Is it possible that while God 
is doing a great work in my life, in your life, in the life of our congregations and community in the midst of a pandemic. And we can miss it? That, that, that I could be asleep? Is it possible that while a life-changing event is taking place right before my eyes, I could be asleep only to be jolted awake after it's all over when the derailment takes place? How could it happen? Well, how did it happen for the disciples? If we can figure that out, then maybe we can figure out how it happens in our lives. So I have three reasons, explanations for what happened in this story. Number one, their physical weakness overpowered the spiritual priority of the hour. Now this is a toughie. These men were exhausted physically. In fact, going back to Luke 22, verse 45, same parallel passage, Luke says, they were exhausted from sorrow. Have you ever been exhausted from sorrow? I have. I've been exhausted from sorrow. And boy, it's in those moments that it's hard to get, well, no. It's not hard for God to get through for me. It's hard for me to get through to God. They were exhausted from sorrow. Their physical condition overpowered the spiritual priority. But the next night, they will have wished that they had not let their physical exhaustion rule their lives. For in so doing, they feel Jesus. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? So the question for me is, does my physical condition rule my spiritual priorities? Same question for you. Does your spiritual condition rule your spiritual priorities? Could I miss something that God wants to do in my life because of overemphasis on the physical part of my humanity? Now, the reason I think this is so important is it shows up in the life of Paul as well. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, these haunting words from Paul as he writes to the Corinthian church. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I do not want to minimize that because I know that there's lots of us in this building and over Zoom too that have got some really significant physical things going on. And I don't want to minimize that in any way. But I do wonder if sometimes those things float to the top of our lives to the point that it's really tough for God to get through to us. Number two, the disciples failed to see the seriousness of the situation. Verse 37 
Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. The Son of Man. <laughs> Talking about death. Was Jesus just mouthing these words? No, they were real. He meant them. They thought the Messiah was about to be crowned. Jesus knew that the Messiah was about to be crucified. They missed what God was doing because they missed the signs along the way. They just totally missed it. The road signs of life. I've missed lots of those road signs too. How do we see God's road signs? When, especially when we're immersed in a situation that is just all-encompassing. Well, you know what? I'm going to use the illustration today of a drone. I like those pictures that we see that have been created by drone photography. You know those incredible pictures where they just the drone goes way up there and all of a sudden you've got this panoramic view real estate agents are using drone views now to sell property uh, my sister sold her house in Uxbridge a lovely property and built a house uh, just north of Port Hope but uh, I'm convinced it was it was the the picture of of uh, of her property, um, she has chickens there too. And, and someone who likes chickens would have loved that drone shot because had a picture of the chickens coming out as the drone went over top, scared them. And it was, it was fascinating just to see the bird's eye view. Sometimes we need the view from above. We're so involved in the details of life and 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 they're important that we we what what's the big picture here help me lord to look at this thing globally uh, what is the sign that you are giving to me what am i missing get me outside of all the weeds that i'm in and and lift me up so i can see what you are doing Road signs along the road sometimes need the perspective of the heavens. Number three, they failed to realize that temptation was near for them. Uh, they could tell that Jesus was in earnest. They, they, they had to see what he was going through. Even though they were exhausted from sorrow and slept right through it, they had to to understand that Jesus was uh, incredibly, incredibly uh, troubled by what was taking place. But what they failed to see was that temptation was just as near for them. And that's what Jesus says to them in verse 41. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The old King James Version, the flesh is weak. And within three hours or less, Peter, asleep right now, will wish he'd been praying because three times he will have denied ever knowing Jesus of Nazareth. Could we miss something that God wanted to do in our lives because we succumbed to temptation 
and lost sight of the important things in life. I've learned that the, the worst enemy of first best in terms of understanding God's plan and purpose is not the fifth best. It's the second best because it looks so much like first best. It's close, Lord. It's close. Not exactly. The disciples failed to realize that temptation was near for them. So, on the one hand, you have Jesus struggling with God. You have his passion, his mortal agony, his body literally beginning to die before the cross. And on the other hand, his three best friends, nine not even with him, nine in another part of the garden from what the text tells us, his three closest friends asleep at the switch. Well, what happened? Their physical weakness overpowered spiritual priority. They failed to see the seriousness of the situation and they failed to realize that temptation was near for them. So, I don't want to leave you like that this morning. Because I know because it's happened to me too, that all of us at some point in our lives have missed something that we really wish we hadn't missed. That we missed God's nudge, we missed His signals, we missed an opportunity, we missed whatever. You fill in the blank. As I was preparing for today, just by happenstance, I read Oswald Chambers. I, I have read, used my utmost for his highest for over 30 years on a daily basis. But on the 17th day, 18th day of February, excuse me, in my utmost for his highest, this very text was being dealt with. And to me, it just, as I felt really strongly led this morning that I'm to read this as my conclusion. I think you'll see why. Because it, it, it leaves us with what happens if, it takes us to what happens if this has happened in our lives. It takes us from despair to hope. Here's what Oswald Chambers writes. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples went to sleep when they should have stayed awake. And once they realized what they had done, it produced despair. The sense of having done something irreversible tends to make us despair. We say, well, it's all over and ruined now. What's the point in trying anymore? If we think this kind of despair is an exception, we are mistaken. It is a very ordinary human experience. Whenever we realize we have not taken advantage of a magnificent opportunity, we are apt to sink into despair. But Jesus comes and lovingly says to us, in essence, Sleep on now. That opportunity is lost forever and you can't change it. But get up and let's go on to the next thing. In other words, let the past sleep, but it, let it sleep in the sweet embrace of Christ and let us go on into the invincible future with Him. There will be experiences like this in each of our lives. 
We will have times of despair caused by real events in our lives, and we will be unable to lift ourselves out of them. The disciples in this instance had done a downright unthinkable thing. They had gone to sleep instead of watching with Jesus. But our Lord came to them and taking the spiritual initiative against their despair said, in effect, get up and do the next thing. Get up and do the next thing. It is to trust him absolutely if we are inspired by God. What is the next thing? It is to trust him absolutely and to pray on the basis of his redemption. Never let the sense of past failure defeat your next step. Let us pray. We're so grateful, Lord, that you don't leave us where you find us. And that is not just at the beginning moments of our walk with you. That's all through the journey. Because there's lots and lots of times that where you find us isn't where we want to be found. Thank you that there is never a time when you are not seeking us, when you are not reaching into the very deepest parts of our soul, saying, I'm here, let's carry on. As we walk with you, Lord, during this Lenten season, as you journey to the cross, we pray that we will walk with you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.